Today on Regionally Speaking, the month of November recognized National Family Caregivers Month as well as National Alzheimer's and Dementia Month. So we wanted to spend some time focused on caregiving. We're speaking with LaVon Jarrett, director of the Vazia program, a collaboration with Franciscan Health and the Lake County Superior Courts. The program trains and supervises court-appointed legal guardians for the elderly and incapacitated. Economists across the country say concerns about a recession are real, but will those concerns have an effect on consumer spending this holiday season? But up first, Jide Ekunkanye is a Gary activist leading a campaign to preserve and honor the legacy of Means Manor, a community once dubbed the showplace of Gary. All of that on this edition of Regionally Speaking, after the news. And welcome back to Regionally Speaking with your host, Dee Dotson. Earlier this year, a house built by one of Gary's most influential Black-owned real estate developers was named one of the 10 most dangerous places in the state by Indiana Landmarks. And if something isn't done, a key piece of Gary's history will deteriorate to the point of no return. But the good news is that grassroots volunteers are working to save the house and improve the neighborhood around it. Joining us today to talk about the work she is leading to shine a light on what has been called the showplace of Gary is Jide Ekunkanye, founder of the organization Say Yes to Means. Jide, thank you for joining us today on Regionally Speaking. Thank you for having me. So Jide, as I shared in my opening, you're here with us today to talk about the campaign that you're leading with your organization, Say Yes to Means, in collaboration with Indiana Landmarks. For those that may be unfamiliar, can you please take a moment to share with our listening audience the history of Means Manor in Gary? Sure, absolutely. Uh, Means Manor is a community that was developed Totally by Means Brothers Developers, which is a company that was founded by Andrew A. Means and his wife, Katie Means. They were joined by his brother's younger brother, Jeter Means, at a time when there was a housing shortage for the African-American community due to the political and racial climate at the time. Black people were not only not allowed to access certain areas or neighborhoods, but they were not even allowed to purchase homes through like the normal um, channels that we take for granted, like loans and FHA loans, and even uh, GI loans. And Andrew Means was instrumental in erasing that barrier so that Black people can purchase homes and be more, you know, provide equity um, among the African American community because they were denied that right. And this means manner community was a community that he developed to address that housing shortage in the Midtown community in Gary, Indiana. And he fought very hard so that the uh, FHA would remove that barrier so that African-Americans can get the loans that they needed to purchase the houses and also for the GI Bill to be applied to the housing for African-American servicemen. And they actually were the first ones to, to purchase the homes. He gave them priority when he first built the development. Means Manor, this community of brick bungalows, was developed by brothers Andrew and Geter Means. And so we're talking about two African-American men 
having the knowledge and the perseverance and, and quite frankly, the financial means to develop a community of homes for a group of people who were disenfranchised, who were oftentimes cut off from traditional financing and just flat out being denied their right to buy a home and to live the American dream. And as you just shared, many of them were denied their right to access HFA loans or their GI Bill. We're talking about 100 years ago, right? So tell us about how the Means Brothers afforded African-Americans the opportunity to own their own homes. So I understand that not only did they develop the homes, but they also financed the homes as well? Absolutely, that is correct. Before the Means Manor, and it's the proper name is the Andrew Means Park Manor subdivision. Before that was actually developed, Mr. Means developed over a thousand homes in the area and for all races. So he was really diverse at a time when diversity was not very popular. And he actually developed a community not too far from Means Manor called the Means Model Community. Another one was the F.D. Patterson Community. He also built a building named after his wife. He built another building, apartment complex that was multi-use. that had businesses and living spaces. And that was the Booker T. Washington Terrace Apartment. So up until what he would do, because, you know, a lot of people could not get the loans due to you know, racism. Or he would just take people on their word and they would just pay him directly. So he didn't have like a finance company or anything like that. You know, people would just just be honest and, you know, pay him back for, you know, whatever, whatever they owe for the building of their homes. He also allowed you to pay off the debt. If you didn't have like maybe cash in hand, you could work it off by working on one of his projects or working on your own home. So my grandfather actually, you know, was helped because he worked on his own home when it got built because he didn't have the full down payment. He worked on some other homes when Mies Manor was being built. So he was really wow. creative wow. in overcoming those barriers and those obstacles. It was just really amazing the way he would come up with just genius ideas and just put it, just have faith and, you know, not worry about, okay, hey, this person might not pay me back. That, that didn't stop him. Just went forward with it. Wow. How many homes were built by the Means Brothers? Uh, it, was, it was definitely over a thousand. Some places I read was over 2,000. But he developed communities for uh, African-Americans, for white people. He developed commercial as well as residential. So he had an actual multi-million dollar company in the 50s. And that's amazing for an African-American um, developer. We're speaking with Jide Ekunkanye, founder of the organization Say Yes to Means. Jide, so let's look at history for a moment, right? So the Means Brothers built the first homes in 1922, which was less than a year after the tragic events in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in which the Mecca and, quite frankly, the heartbeat of one of the wealthiest black communities in the U.S. was burned down and sadly destroyed. So I can only imagine that these two brothers, these two African-American men, must have faced obstacles along their way as well, correct? Yes, yes, they did. Many obstacles, but... They were very creative in overcoming those obstacles. They started the company with well, Mr. Means and Mrs. Means started the company in actually a tar paper shack with only $90 and a typewriter. And wow. they, they actually built their first home. They, the building materials were loaned to them by the supplier. And they was able to sell a house and, you know, flip it and pay that back. And then as they start getting more and more work, you know, they were able to, it's kind of got a little help there, 
And then he was able to, you know, go take it off from there because he would build houses and then people would like it. And then the business just grew and grew from there. But he started in the 1920s. And actually, I was told by one of his relatives that the very first house that he built and lived in, he and his wife actually built it using the skills that they learned from Tuskegee University. And, you know, it just got better and better as time went on. Okay, GD, so I just had a, a moment as you were sharing your grandfather's journey to home ownership and how he worked hard to, of course, pay for his home. But also as a part of that buying process, he participated as well by helping to build his home and can't help but think that the model that the Means Brothers utilized is quite frankly mirrors that of Habitat for Humanity, in which the home buyer participates in the process and is actually truly invested in the home buying giving of their time and their talent, right? And as I am reflecting on your grandfather's journey, I'm also reminded of the Great Migration, which is well-documented and enshrined in the history of America. With over 6 million Blacks leaving behind their lives and sometimes their families in search of better opportunities up North, as well as escaping from Jim Crow laws and segregation, with over 200,000 Black Southerners reaching Gary, Indiana, with the hopes of landing a job at the steel mill. And so ideally, with so many families connected to a business that literally owns the entire town, one would think that housing, or rather enough adequate housing, would be available for its labor force. So how much does the steel mill play in the history of Means Manor? Mr. Means himself started out working in the steel mill when he moved up here from Alabama. My grandfather and grandmother, Joseph G. Ridley Sr. and Tometa Ridley, they were part of the Great Migration, migrating from Mississippi. My grandfather was in the military, and they came up around the time, sometimes late 40s, early 50s, and they did what a lot of African-American people did, was live with family members who were already here. And in my grandparents' case, that was my mother's older brother. His name was Ernest Baker Sr., and he lived with his wife. He and his wife, uh, Orrin Lee Baker, they had hosted and allowed my grandparents to live with them and their family until they were able to secure the funds to purchase the home. My grandfather worked for the tool mill, and um, so he, so the steel mill did play a part because they employed a lot of the people so they could be able to afford those, you know, have stable income and living wage so they can support their families. And when Mr. Me started developing this community, my grandfather was one of the original founding owners when it first got built. First Manor was the original manor. He was one of the people that was originally owners of homes that Means initially built because his house was built in 1952. And Mr. Means actually built his house on 21st and Harrison in 1952. So everything was really brand new then. And you know, as we mentioned earlier, Mr. Needs was real creative. So it was similar to Habitat for Humanity, but in a sense that the homeowners played a part um, right. in building up the homes. But that was only if necessary. It was like an option that Mr. Needs gave to encourage people to buy homes from him because, you know, they did face a lot of barriers. They couldn't get the financing. So that was mostly out of necessity. Because where else could they get the money? Because you couldn't go to the bank and get a loan to get the down payment as we do now. And they didn't have the wonderful programs that they have with the grants and first-time buyers and things of that nature. So it was a lot of, you know, it was not as equitable and as it is now. 
So that was just another one of Mr. Me's creative, you know, using his creativity to create that opportunity for African-Americans to live that American dream and become homeowners. So after years of sitting empty, Jeter Means Home, which is located at 2044 Monroe Lane, was recently placed on Indiana Landmark's top 10 endangered list of historical structures. And this is where you come in. You and your organization Say Yes to Means, in collaboration with Landmarks, are working to get Means Manor on the National Register of Historic Places so that the contributions of the Means Brothers won't be forgotten, right? So tell us more about what inspired you to become an advocate for not only the Jeter Means Home, but also for Means Manor. Okay, well, first I want to begin and say that we're proud to be partnered with Indiana Landmarks as they are a wonderful organization that's preserving history. Every part of the state of Indiana, their body of work is incredible and the quality of work is just exceptional. So we're definitely proud and thankful to be partnered with such an organization of that caliber. And Gidemi is one of the founders of the community and his house was extremely like modern at the time when it was built in the 50s. They had things like surround sound, as I was told, like the speakers in the wall. It had like the bathrooms that's inside the bedroom. It's not normally, uh, houses were not normally designed like that. And the way it was situated was that when you come into the community, if you came in off of 21st Avenue, you would see that house. It was like a showpiece to, you know, to show like how nice the community is and, you know, to sell, um, the community to maybe prospective buyers. And a lot of people used to just come to show the homes or the community as really nice community or a community where black people kept the community in a very high standard. And the house along with Mr. Mead's house were like the anchor homes or the showpiece homes. And it's really, really important that those homes are preserved because they are a vital piece of the history of the neighborhood. And unfortunately, Jeter house has fell into disrepair, and we, as a community, we don't want it to, you know, be destroyed by blight or decay, and so we spearheaded that effort so that the house can be restored to its original glory. Um, the community, even before I even took on the project, the Means Manor community members have been keeping up the house because as long as it's been in the situation that it's been in, you know how the forest would have taken it over by now. Right, right. But community members have taken their time and their resources, keeping the yard cut, keeping the trees down, you know, because they don't want their house to fall, you know, just fall down to the ground and be forgotten. So I'm really inspired by the Means Manor community itself since this exception. It has been a really tight knit community, a close community. The neighbors truly love each other, but they help each other out. It's not uncommon to see somebody mowing another person's yard or helping them with housework or anything, you know, in this um, family-friendly community where children can play safely. It's always been like that. So it's no surprise that they would take it upon themselves to keep a home in disrepair, not to go to fully, completely um, destroy, even though the owner was, is absent or, you know, whatever reason they're not able to maintain the property. It was still being maintained the best that it could be, you know, because they're just outside yeah. by the community members. And I think that's the, really the crux of uh, Mead's Manor is that the people had truly loved their community and they do everything they can to keep it to a, a very high standard. And they truly have love for each other and, 
and a serious, true community spirit. And I think that really is what inspires me also to do the, the project to make sure that not only the, the memory of Mr. Means, uh, Mr. G to Means legacy, their great body of work, but also included in that is the great community that this that is the reason why the neighborhood even still stands because the people in the community are really serious about, you know, having setting a certain standard and keeping their neighborhood to be, you know, just a great place to live. Gita, I'm thinking about the height of the pandemic when many of us reevaluated our life's purpose, if you will, and you relate it back to your grandfather's home. So is that when you began to do the work that you're doing on behalf of the residents in Means Manor with your organization, Say Yes to Means? Well, actually, it started way before the pandemic. Growing up as a young child, we were always taught about Andrew Means and the Means Brothers. That is something that's ingrained since a small child by my father and my grandparents, neighbors. And they will always talk about, you know, the wonderful things that uh, Mr. Means did for people in the community. His legacy, the way he, you know, just like the story I told you about my grandfather working off the debt. My grandfather, you know, he told me that story way before the pandemic. Wow. So the the whole story, the whole legacy, the importance of legacy, that has always been ingrained in me. And I kind of took on the project because I was under the impression, because I always visited my grandparents, visited the neighborhood. All his neighbors knew me, you know, from a child, you know. Mm-hmm. So I always had an intimate relationship with the community, even though I didn't grow up in that community. You know, I grew up actually in Florida, but always well aware of Mr. Means' legacy, his impact on not only the Means Manor community, but the community of Gary um, as a whole, you know, how he impacted this whole area and his good works, you know, on some things were known publicly, some things not known publicly, but he was a tireless advocate for the community. And, you know, and people really appreciated this. So you were always here. If my grandparents were telling me a story, it was my father, it was their neighbors, and they, you always hear good things. And so I thought that the neighborhood was already like a historic district or had some type of designation as far as its historic status. And I took on the project actually in 2019 when I found out that it was not, you know, set as a historically significant place. And that's what really started to say yes to me. We actually started in 2019 exploring, you know, what needed to place it on the National Register of Historic Places. And we, you know, met with the community and they were all in agreement and gave me the permission to pursue the project. And um, and that's when when it all started. So everything else that happened after that, you know, just, you know, things that happen in life, (laughs) you just keep going and you adjust to it. In reflecting on our time here today, I cannot help but remember that 100 years ago, two black men from Alabama, two black men from Alabama developed a community for blacks in Gary. And so I'm thinking about the historical currency of what that means, right? And I understand that through your organization, Say Yes to Means, you're looking to develop a digital museum of sorts in which you can kind of collect and share those stories that may have been lost. I mean, it's been 100 years to collect any story, any recollection, any sort of memorabilia from that time. And so for those that may have a story, that may have an artifact, that may have something to say, how can they share that with your organization, Say Yes to Means? Yes, um... So you mentioning, thank you for mentioning our Share Your Stories project. Um, 
we are embarking on a historical preservation project. Another aspect of it is we want to preserve the as much history as we can. So one, one facet of that, preserving the Jidamese House, placing the whole community on the National Register of Historic Places. But, you know, those are just two things. We want to keep the story alive by reaching out to the community and asking them if they could share any stories they have about Andrew Means, Peter Means, Means Manor, or anything they feel is relevant to the history of Means Manor is very important and to preserving the history so that it won't be forgotten. So with this project, is um, we just started it this year, and we really encourage any and everyone in the community that has a story. There's no such thing as an unimportant or insignificant story. Every story is important. Every voice matters. Every voice needs to be heard. And we really encourage you to reach out to us. Either you can contact us by website. We have a special part of our website set up to that. And that's at sayyestomeans.org slash share your story. Or you can go to our website, sayyestomeans.org, and select the share your stories um, button. And we'll have a form where you can fill out, you can submit anything, artifacts, pictures, videos. You want to write a story, or you can give us a call to make an appointment where someone can, from our organization can interview you, or by any method that you prefer, telephone in person or Zoom. And that number is 773-259-9378. So if you know anyone that has a story or you yourself are interested, by all means, please, we'd be more than happy to to hear your story and record your story for posterity so that future generations can have this as a, a resource, historical resource that's very important because if, you know, once people are gone, those stories are largely forgotten and they can never, ever be recovered. So, Jide, just to piggyback on the work that you're doing to collect those stories so that the contributions of the Means Brothers won't be forgotten, I just wanted to share that having those voices, having those stories, having those artifacts really and truly does impact the community. So we here at Lakeshore Public Radio, we carry a program called The Welcome Project in collaboration with Valparaiso University. And The Welcome Project, in their own words, they collect first-person stories to help facilitate conversation, but also forge stronger ties within and across our community. And so the work that you're doing to collect first-person stories in relation to Means Manor will have a positive impact on the Northwest Indiana community as a whole. And so we thank you for collecting those first-person stories and keeping the legacy of the Means Brothers alive. We thank you for providing this platform and bringing awareness to the project. We really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time out to provide that. Jide Ekunkanye is the founder of the organization Say Yes to Means, located in Geary, Indiana. Jide, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking sharing the work that you're doing to preserve the show place of Gary before it's forgotten. You're welcome and thank you again, Dean. And you're listening to Regionally Speaking on listener-supported Lakeshore Public Radio. Inflation is at a 40-year high and the economy is growing at a sluggish pace. Economists say concerns about a recession are real, but it may be avoided if consumer spending continues to persist and if more workers enter the labor force. And that's according to a forecast released earlier this month by Indiana University's Kelly School of Business. 
So we turn now to PNC Financial Services Group Assistant Vice President and Senior Economist Abby Omendundi to get his take on the economic outlook for this month. Abby, as always, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thanks, Bea. It's nice to be back. Okay, so Abby, given the high inflation, higher interest rates, and to be frank, just overall uncertainty, do you think consumers will stay at home this holiday season? Will it be a strong holiday season for the U.S. economy? I mean, just thinking about Thanksgiving that just passed. Reports show that American families spent a whopping 20% more for their dinner this year alone. There's so many uncertainties higher interest rate, higher inflation. Well, consumers have shown remarkable resilience this year. Consumers saved up over $2 trillion during the pandemic. Consumers have been spending their savings in 2022. So we've been seeing remarkable resilience from consumers so far this year. For the holiday season, we are expecting a moderate increase in holiday retail sales. So last year, we had a 3% increase in the fourth quarter of 2021. That's on a quarter-over-quarter basis. We're expecting less than 1% increase this year. So due to many of the headwinds which you stated, such as higher interest rates and also higher inflation, we're going to see just a more moderate increase in retail sales this quarter compared to last year. Wow. So bringing it closer to home, what is the latest on the regional economy? Right. So, so many firms and, you know, many consumers are facing, you know, many of the issues that are being faced nationally, particularly locally. You know, many companies are facing higher cost labor shortages and also higher interest rates. Also in Northwest Indiana, there's been a trend in terms of the composition of jobs. There's been a decline in jobs in the manufacturing sector and also an increase in jobs in the services providing sector. I expect that trend to continue in the near term, mainly because many consumers are changing their spending patterns now. They're spending less on goods and more on services. So that will be positive for the services sector. So locally, I do expect companies to continue to see labor shortages in the near term. But as interest rates go up, you know, we're expecting to see a slackening in the labor market, which will lead to a um, slightly higher increase in the unemployment rate in 2023. Okay, Abby, so one final question for you. We've seen reports that want us to get ready that a recession is very likely. But I also recently read a report from Indiana University's Kelly School of Business that essentially says that economists around the U.S., including those at the Federal Reserve, have been perplexed when it comes to predicting the national economy's direction. So in your role as a senior economist for the PNC Financial Services Group, what is PNC's financial outlook for 2023? We are expecting a mild recession in 2023. We're expecting a three-quarter recession that starts in the second um, 2022. The housing sector is in recession now. I expect the recession, which we're forecasting, will happen next year to be driven by the downturn in the housing sector. So we are going to see a decline in house prices, which is going to affect consumers. So consumers tend to spend less when the values of their houses go down. So we are going to see consumers pull back and also some businesses pull back, which will lead to a mild recession in 2023. So we expect the Fed to continue raising interest rates and the weights in consumer spending. And even when we get the rebound, when the rebound which we're forecasting in 2024, the U.S. economy will probably grow at a very slow pace for most of 2024. Abby Omendundi is an assistant vice president and senior economist for the PNC Financial Services Group. Abby, as always, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking, and we look forward to having you with us next month with another look at the economy. Thanks, B. Happy holidays. For the 39th year, the PNC Financial Services Group has calculated the cost of Christmas. 
The year-over-year increase in 2022 is the third highest on record. The PNC Financial Services Group, Inc. is one of the largest diversified financial services industries in the United States, organized around its customers and communities for strong relationships and local delivery of retail and business banking, including a full range of lending products, specialized services for corporations and government entities, including corporate banking, real estate, finance, and asset-based lending, wealth management, and asset management. For more information about PNC, visit www.pnc.com. This is Regionally Speaking. And welcome back to Regionally Speaking on listener-supported Lakeshore Public Radio. And I'm your host, Dee Dotson. Northwest Indiana aging and or incapacitated adults unable to care for themselves or make decisions on their own face a precarious situation. And residents afflicted with conditions such as dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and mental illnesses are at a high risk for exploitation without a trustworthy guardian to ensure they receive the care and support they need. To protect the community's most vulnerable people, in 2001, the Volunteer Advocates for Seniors and Incapacitated Adults, or VASIA program, was started, a collaborative effort between Franciscan Health Hammond and Lake County Superior Courts. We turn now to LaVon Jarrett, Director of VASIA, to learn more about the program in recognition of National Family Caregivers Month. LaVon, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Hi, Dee. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, LaVon, tell us first the genesis of the program, why it was started, as well as its mission. I I love the word genesis because that is exactly what it was. The beginning of a great idea back in 2001. And, you know, some people still remember Franciscan Hammond currently as the former St. Margaret. And that's actually where the idea originated, N-E-R there was a high number of seniors presenting incapacitated without decision makers. And so big salute to the president of a hospital at that time, who was Mr. Thomas Brisbeck, who was retired, but he was one of the, the very proactive presidents and CEOs of that time that said, you know what, I think, I think St. Margaret needs to be a lot more proactive. And I do believe in divine appointment, and that's exactly what happened to him. He met a young lady by the name of Rebecca Pryor out of Indianapolis who had a consulting organization, a consulting firm, uh, but was also very instrumental in the court-appointed special advocates for children organization. And those two brain minds, brain powers, put their ideas together uh, at a dinner, and that's how some of the conversation began to surface as to what if they're was a program that was designed like CASA, but that was targeted for the seniors that were showing up in ER. And um, the the magic just began to happen from there. So, you know, this thought just came to me. Since it was based at Franciscan Health Hammond, which is on the border of the lovely state of Illinois, I can only imagine the organization serves community members from both states. Would that be correct? That is very correct, Dee. In fact, both campuses, the Hammond campus at the time and Dyer definitely because we do sit on the border. And that was another part of the influx too of individuals because we were the Hammond location and Dyer location actually are and still is the 911 for a lot of the skill care facilities 
that sit on the border or that are close to the border in Illinois. So definitely. We're speaking with LaVon Jarrett, Director of the Volunteer Advocates for Seniors and Incapacitated Adults, or VASIA program, now based at the Franciscan Health Dyer location. So VASIA, as we've shared, is a volunteer program. So Take a moment to talk about the volunteers that give of their time, their talents, and their resources to help serve seniors and incapacitated adults in our community. Sure. Um, remarkable people. Uh, we call them angels. We, we have acronyms for these wonderful folks. The experience ranges from retired teachers to social workers to caregivers to CNAs. This is a rich pool of experience. And we're, we're always so honored to have people that just want to do it. A lot of the times what we're noticing is the motivation behind the interest is that their caregivers already or they have an aged person within their family that they're seeing some things happen and they want to be a better resource for them. Some are doing it in the name of uh, deceased loved ones and they want to kind of continue a legacy of advocacy. The experience level is, is phenomenal and the commitment level. Our volunteers do have to be 21 because we love to partner with the local colleges and uh, our, we have a very strong relationship with the Indiana University Northwest, my alma mater, School of Social Work. They are phenomenal with connecting us with bachelor level and master's level social services students that eventually just stay with us. So the level and the experience of our volunteers is a blessing because of the nature of the decisions that they're going to be making. We do need complex thinkers when, when necessary uh, and those that just have a heart to give. There is a background check that is required. Can you talk a little bit about that training that goes into this? Because it's not that, hey, I raise my hand and I say, you know, I want to volunteer in the name of a loved one, uh, for instance, but there is some extensive training that goes into this as well, because there's a lot that you need to know, correct? Correct. <laughs> and thank you for mentioning the background check because, yes, that is definitely a big part of the criteria, too. And the training, you must continue, you must complete what we've grown to actually offer is not just in-person training. And, and back in the day, D, when I first started, mm -hmm. we did 40 hours. Wow. And 40 hours was literally like almost three weeks of training. And uh, that would be probably a couple days a week, evenings after work. And now we've kind of morphed that into modernizing it and making it a little bit more attractive because we also know that people work and have families. So we've kind of condensed that in-person experience. But with COVID hit, we really had to change some things and we adapted the virtual option. That has just been probably one of our biggest successes to actually get people to attend virtually. So that is a new option that we offer. Those sessions are not 10 sessions. We do six sessions, um, and they are on the platform of Microsoft Teams, and we, we really look forward to, to we have a very tight training component and structure and agenda that concludes and kind of includes every part of a decision that we, from our experience, and from what changes in our world, what we think our volunteers will face. So there's a night where we completely just give the night to the court. We honor our probate commissioner, our current probate commissioner. We love him so, uh, Commissioner Benjamin Ballou, that sits under the Honorable Judge Bruce Parent, who oversees our program. He makes his presence at a session, and he just kind of tells 
the volunteer, the perspective of the court, their responsibilities, the Indiana Code kind of breaks that down. Then we talk about privacy, HIPAA compliance, pretty very big for us because we do have to protect the information of our clients. Then we do talk about resources, ending of life, healthcare decisions. We have a wonderful group of trainers that are nurses. And so we we actually have one who has put together such a wonderful, detailed training component that talks about all the medical decisions, gives visual cues. It's, It's an amazing training. And then we do ending of life. We have a local hospice care provider that gives all kind of resources. And so it, it is it is an excellent training. And it's for free. You get all of this information for free. And what we tell our volunteers in the training is that you you can use this information for your client, but it's also beneficial for your families or friends. So pass the information along. So yeah, it, it, it is an excellent training, but the training must be completed in order for you to be considered uh, a candidate to be sworn in as a as an official VASIA volunteer agent. So, yeah, it's, it's an excellent training. So, Levine, we're speaking to you today in recognition of National Hospice and Palliative Care Month as well as National Family Caregivers Month. And you think you kind of answered my next question, and that is what about a loved one that is serving in the capacity of a caregiver that's just looking for additional information, not necessarily that they are in the position to volunteer to be an advocate for someone else in the community, but they just need help with information. And, And I should share with you that I myself am a caregiver for my grandfather, and when he came to our home, It was a bit overwhelming, to say the least. You know, we didn't know the who, we didn't know what, we didn't know where, anything. And it sounds like if we had been a part of this training, some of those bumpy roads that we we went down early on, we would not have gone through them had we had the access to the training. And and it's still uh, difficult for us, uh, to be honest. But, you know, what about those caregivers? Can they come in and be a part of the training just so that they can equip and prepare themselves? Yes. Yes, that that's actually one of another uh, arm and leg of community uh, involvement that we want to present to the community is making sure that you don't have to commit to being a VASIA volunteer. It's it's the information is out there to share with the fast track trainings is what we call those two. That's another option that we've started to adapt with the training program within itself, and that's a half a day training where we're doing, it's fast track though, it is pretty fast. We're going through uh, some of the key components of the training for anyone that would want to participate. We actually had our area one on aging case managers attend our last fast track training and a couple other individuals, just like you said, just for general knowledge, Mm -hmm. just to know what's out there, what's changed, what resources, because there is a lot that's changing within the guardianship community and other options out there for, for families to really use least restrictive things, such as supported decision-making. There are so many things that the state of Indiana is really looking at, and VASTI is a part of it. So we love to filter out that information through the training. We're speaking with LaVon Jarrett, Director of the Volunteer Advocates for Seniors and Incapacitated Adults, or VASIA program, now based at the Franciscan Health Dyer location. So we talked about VASIA's volunteers, but let's take a moment to talk about the program participants. If a friend or neighbor is concerned about a community member that may not have an advocate or even someone is in need, how can they do so? How can they get in contact with your organization? That's great. So 
We are very proud and happy to be partnering with our Lake County Adult Protective Services, and we have a strong agreement with them. This way, we can filter through individuals within the community. When we were first originated, and, and for quite some time, we were only taking referrals from institutions, hospitals, nursing homes, facilities. We partnered with Adult Protective so that we can start targeting another group, and that's the community within itself. So I always advise people, your first entity to contact is Adult Protective Services. Adult Protective moves on, does the, of course, what they do best, wellness checks, just making sure that the person has the resources and capacity. If there is a question of capacity, Adult Protective Services does assist in that way. I can't fully put the responsibility on them because it is case by case, but that would be my first recommendation to involve us if there's a community member needing services. So as we've shared, the program recruits, trains, and supervises community volunteers to serve as the guardians. Volunteers are sworn in and appointed by the Lake County Superior Court. Now, I understand that you guys are so excited because you have another graduating class coming up. Can you tell us about that? Yes, we are super duper excited. We do continue. We do try to hold swearing in ceremonies at least twice a year. um, And we're going to be doing that again this year. And these are folks that actually attended our fall training and the individuals that are going to be completing the fast track training. And what happens in that swearing in ceremony is they actually take an oath, a volunteer oath to, by statement, and it's line upon line, they raise their right hands. And and we're so blessed to be able to do our ceremonies within the courtroom of our probate commissioner. And so he, he swears them in, they take the oath, and then we give them a pen just to mark the day as being such a special day that they are officially VASIA volunteer agent. And what we pride ourselves in is letting them know the value that they're going to be adding at that ceremony. They're given a gift and a certificate of participation and completion for completing the training. And then from that point, we vet them for a case. We're very mindful that once a person has been sworn in, Sometimes circumstances changes and people are not available. We, we're very sensitive to that. And then sometimes people are ready to get going. And so we do have our volunteer coordinator, Francisca Mendoza, that makes sure that the person is assigned a case whenever they're ready. And it is based on where the person lives. We're mindful of that. If they have a sensitivity for someone that's dying, we're mindful of that as well. So we take all of those things into account for case assignment after they're sworn in. And finally, LaVon, you've shared so much information for community members in Northwest Indiana. Um, for anyone that's listening to us right now that would like to find out more information or they have expressed an interest, where can they go? Call me directly. My number is 219-933-7907. It's always best to just kind of conversate and make sure that this is an experience that they want to have, if it's a good fit. And if they are interested, we set up an appointment for them to come and meet our staff. We have a wonderful team. Uh, Barbara L. Melendez is our manager. Francisca Mendoza, who I mentioned before, is our volunteer coordinator. And Mr. Brian Drummond is our VASIA specialist, also social worker. So the volunteer, the prospect will come in and we'll interview and we'll talk to the person and just make sure the experience is the best for them. So, yeah, give me a call. 
LaVon Jarrett is the director of the Volunteer Advocates for Seniors and Incapacitated Adults based at Franciscan Health Dyer. LaVon, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thank you, Dee. Thank you so much. And that's it for Regionally Speaking for this week. Thanks to our guest from Say Yes to the Means, from Say Yes to Means, Jide Ikungande, and from the Vazia program with Vaz, with Franciscan Health, Laverne La, Jared, and from PNC Financial Services Group, Abby Obendundi. And we'll be back with you next week. <laughs>